0: I'm gonna mute everybody online, so we have a nice clean background. Welcome to Torah Studies, sorry. <laughs> you are not muted. You can speak. That's the perks. No, that's the perk. I told you, that's the perk. The perk of in-person. Yeah, Okay. Um, it's like that scene from The Matrix, because I'm all into The Matrix now, and The Matrix resurrected. Came, I, it came out today, the new one. The new one? I haven't even seen the old one. Well, the first one, I don't want to give too much away, but in the first scene, he tries to talk, and he can't talk, that's all I'll say. That's, uh, if you know what I'm talking about, the mouth gets a little, a little, little funky. All right, so let's jump into to today's class. Today we have, in my opinion, perhaps one of the best Torah studies class that I've ever taught, which hasn't happened yet. This class, well, no, I'm saying this class hasn't happened yet. I'm already predicting. I'm saying that's how confident I am in today's class. What we are going to do is look at a story that I know without a doubt Every single one of you has heard a bunch of times. You heard the story, you know the story. There are no surprises until there are. Because when you look a little bit closer at the biblical narrative, when you look a little bit closer at the Torah's tale, you suddenly discover some, let shall we call, anomalies, some strange details and nuances that otherwise we might miss and that hold some incredible depth for us and incredible practical messages for us today, December 22nd, 2021, and whichever day that it is, this will hold a message for us. So the story, Wednesday, yeah. The story, the story that we're going to tell is the story of Egyptian slavery. Again, we all know the story. And the story of the birth of the, ultim- the, the one who would ultimately become the redeemer of the Jewish people, i.e. Moses. So let's take a trip back Moshe. down memory lane. Moshe. Take a trip back down memory lane and just recap a few very cr- critical points, and then we're going to get to the story that we all know, and then I'm going to ask some questions that I think you may not have ever wondered. At least one of them, I think, maybe at, no one here has, has thought about. I would venture to say. Alright? That's my, that's my challenge. My challenge. But let's go back to the beginning. So what happens is, and we, know, we all know this story, the Jewish people, sorry, they're not a people yet. The family, the Mishpacha, Yaakov's family, Jacob's family, moves down to Egypt. How many are they originally? 70. How do you get to 70? Well, there's Jacob, There's his 12 sons, and they have their own children, the grandchildren. So between Yaakov, Jacob, his children, and his grandchildren, including Yosef, etc., and his children, you have the, the mishpacha, the family, the Jewish family in Egypt begins with the number 70. After not a long amount of time, the numbers grow exponentially. According to one tradition, listen to this. When the Jewish women got pregnant, they would give birth to six at a time. Doctor Maxi, can you imagine the business that this would bring in? As a pediatrician, right? Can you imagine the business? Yeah, six babies at a time, six children. Now, I'm
1: just imagining the
0: poor mother. Well, hold so so good. Well, hold on so one second. (laughs) (laughs) Octo, was octo six? It's like it's eight, right? Oh, Octomom is, eight. Oh, Octo is eight. eight? All right, whatever. So, yeah, that's why well, eight well, Eight would be crazy. Six is manageable. Right? I mean, apparently. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. According to our sages, this is not, yeah, you tell someone, how about six at a time? Like, whoa, oh, oh, slow down, cowboy. Six at a time. But in the, in the, free, in the understanding, in the um, conception of our sages, this was an incredible blessing. Now, again, we have maybe a different framework. We have maybe a different metric by which we kind of think about these things. But in the, in the um, right, in, the, in, in, in our sages' understanding, this is a tremendous blessing. Six children, six souls coming into the world at a time. Ah, gewaldic. Here's the deal. After a short amount of time, the Jewish numbers are booming, right? So the curve, I'm just going to make up some statistics here. You ready? We start off at seventy. The population goes whoa straight up, and now there's thousands and thousands and thousands of members of this ever-growing Jewish clan with no sign of abating. As the Book of Exodus begins, the Torah tells us, Melech Chadash Asher Es Yosef," that a new king, which is Hebrew for and a new king arose over Egypt, a king who did not know Joseph. And there's a dispute, dispute in the Talmud between Rav and Shmuel. One opinion says he was literally a new king. And the other one says he was the same king, the same Pharaoh, but he pretended like he didn't know Joseph. Right? It's like, Jews? What? Uh, Joseph? I don't remember that guy. Who, what did he do? He saved, saved us from famine. Who, who can remember? So whether it was a new king who didn't, didn't look at the history books, or whether it was an old king who didn't care about the history books, the result is the same, that the Pharaoh begins to subject, to, to plot against the Jewish people, against the Jewish family. Well, who he calls, if I'm not mistaken, for the very first time in Torah, Am. Yisrael, the nation of the children of Israel. He's the, I believe Pharaoh is the first one to call us a people, an am, a people. Until then, we were a family. But he calls us a people. In which context? In the context of trying to say that the Jews are dangerous. Why are the Jews dangerous? Because what's happening is, and I think the, I think the expression, I mentioned this at DBP Daily Power Parsha a few days ago on Monday. I think the term it's called the fifth column. Is that, a, is that a phrase that's familiar? A fifth column means like an enemy that's inside? inside. With inside. So, so Pharaoh says what's going to happen is we have all these Jews. They weren't called Jews then. All these Israelites, maybe they were called that. All these Israelites who are not a, one of us and they're a foreign entity. And what's going to happen is that they, they're different than us. And if another nation starts a war against us, who's to say that these Israelites won't join the enemy and erode at us and and, and beat us up and destroy us from the inside and drive us out of our own land? This is what Pharaoh says to the people. Classic, classic fear-mongering, classic othering, classic prejudice, classic bias. It's textbook... Straight-up textbook othering and fear-mongering, just straight-up. And so he says, one second, so what he says is, what he says is that we therefore have to start a campaign to, to get rid of, the, to get rid of this, these people or to at least keep them, keep them under, under a pre, an oppressed state. And this, the slavery thus begins, and how it begins is not, we're not going to get into the, the whole origin story of the slavery, but suffice to say that it starts off slowly it starts off gradually and it eventually picks up there are different stages brought at the beginning of this week's Torah portion we t- we read about how they started working for Pharaoh working for the government and then they had as volunteers and then they and then they be, then they had to work and then they had uh, a quote of how much they had to work and then they had backbreaking labor it gets worse and worse and worse and it, it happens over a long period of time you know, over a hundred plus years, but slowly but surely it gets worse and worse and worse and more devastating and more devastating, and it culminates, and this is where we're going to pick up inside, it culminates with Pharaoh putting a decree against the Israelites, what we would call the Jewish people, and the decree is, all the boys that are born shall be cast into the Nile. I, and I know that you we're all familiar with this story, right? At some point in time, and it's the beginning of this Torah portion. At some point in this Egyptian saga, the Pharaoh of Egypt says, "Jewish boys that are born, the baby boys, to the Jews, uh, the baby boys are now need to be thrown into cast into the Nile River." This is where we pick up today's class, and what we're going to do first, what we're going to do first is read that verse, that, which is text 1a and and then we're going to ask a question i'm going to ask a question okay let's read this i'm going to put up the text uh, on the screen take a look at text 1a um elio if you don't mind reading text 1a but nice and loud so everyone can hear
1: And Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the Nile, and every daughter you shall allow to live.
0: This is the decree from Pharaoh. This is after slavery is already a thing. This is after backbreaking labor is a thing. We now have, and an backbreaking labor, I don't mean the six babies, but I'm um,
1: <laughs>
0: joking. Backbreaking labor, this is after the servitude and the slavery, right? What ha- what's happening is now we have a decree, about the boys being thrown into the Nile River. So this takes us actually. Before I ask the question, let me add in one more detail, one more layer to the story. The next layer to the story is as follows. So what happens is there's a guy named Amram, a Levite, somebody from the from the from the family from the tribe of Levi, descendants of this the, one of the twelve sons Levi. His name is Amram. And he gets married, or actually more precisely, remarried to a a woman from the same tribal family, whose name is Yocheved. And they have a child. And the child that's born would later become known as Moses. He's born prematurely. So the Egyptians were counting from the day they got remarried, because they had separated because of this decree. Anyway about the boys being killed, so they figured, like, why have kids? And then the daughter said, hey, but what about the girls? The girls would live, so you get back together again. So they got back together again. The Egyptians were counting for nine months. She gets pregnant. She gives birth six months and one day in. His mother gives birth. Moses was a preemie, very big-time preemie, six months and a day, according to our tradition, right? So he is born about three months premature. The Torah says that for three months... No Egyptian uh, officials came around because they knew that they, they knew when they had gotten back together. And they figured, you know, they'll start coming around nine months later. Meanwhile, she gave birth at six months. Now, three months later, they're going to start knocking on the door. So what does she do? She needs to figure out a plan to hide this baby of hers. So what does she do? This takes us directly into text 1B. Elio, if you don't mind reading text 1B because uh, it's the twin of text 1A.
1: When she could no longer hide him, she took for him a reed basket, smeared it with clay and pitch, placed
0: the child into it, and put it into the marsh at the edge. So what happens is, as the Torah says, Yocheved, his mother, the mother of Moses, after three months, now they're going to be knocking on the door, searching the house, looking for babies, right? But what's she, what she going to She's going to hide this baby. So what does she do? She takes a basket, she waterproofs it, yeah, smears it with clay and pitch, and puts the child in it, Places it by the Nile. That's what she does. Okay, now, yeah. I'm sorry, is
1: this the same Yocheved who was born right here? Yes, at the
0: this is the same Yocheved. Excellent. She was number 70. Remember I mentioned there were 70 family members? Yeah. There were 69 that started the journey down to Egypt. Number 70 was Yocheved, this same mom of Moses. She was born at the border when they were first coming down into Egypt. She was born at the border. But now, listen, listen and, and she was, according to tradition, 130 years old when she gave birth to Moses. So this is 130 years, yes, that's, that's uh, quite an age. Um, no, 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 what I'm saying is she, it was a blessing, it was a miracle, it was a miracle that she got, obviously she got a kid. So 130, now, that, and just this gives us a sense of how long they've been in Egypt. They've been in Egypt now for 130 years. It's a long time to be in this foreign country. I'm gonna ask a question that I think is an obvious question that no one asks because we're so familiar with the story, maybe we've never thought that we're allowed to ask this question, right? Maybe we thought that that we're not allowed to to ponder this this, this type of question. But here's my question, and it's a bit of a judgy question. She wants to hide her baby. We would assume she loves her baby. Can I ask a question? Would we assume she loves her baby? Yes, yeah. She wants the best for him? Yes. Of all the places to hide a baby, yeah? Are you, I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. Of all the places to hide a baby, right? how many of us would be like, okay, I got a great idea. Put them in a basket, send them down the river. How, who is, are you with me on, on my question? Yeah. Who would think in the right mind, build a secret cave and, yeah. and put your baby there and then secretly visit and feed and take care of your baby, send family members, shifts every hour. I, listen. You and I could come up with a thousand better ideas than sending your baby down the lazy river, Rapids. I don't know if Nile had Rapids. I'm just kind of like, you know, you know, freestyling here. But are you kidding me? Now, we all know the story. She puts Moses in the, in, the, in the water, in the river. And we don't think twice about it, perhaps. And if you thought about this question, call a kavod. It's a klutz kasha. Klutz kasha means it's a question that no one asks. But that's true. Yeah. What?
1: Absolutely true. That
0: nobody, when you ask it, it's like, I'm trying to speak the truth. (laughs) Sometimes I get it right. Listen, I I, listen. It's it's a question. It's an obvious question that no one asks. What what was she thinking? She's putting him on the Of all the places you could put a baby on a river in a makeshift raft, like what is going on here? What's the plan? What's the plan? So one second. So one second. We need to go much deeper in the story because as obvious as the question is, there's an equally powerful and solid, dare I say, waterproof answer. Dare I say. I didn't say it. Dare I say. Dare I say. I would never say such a thing. All right. And what's the answer? We have to understand, we have to go back a little bit and understand why it is that Pharaoh had said in in his decree, right? Remember text 1A? Pharaoh said to throw all the boys in the Nile. Why were they supposed to throw the boys into the Nile River? Why this Nile? Why do we keep on com- coming back around to this river? So this goes back to an incredible teaching of our sages. And here's how it goes. Pharaoh was a big believer in signs and messages. Remember, remember he had dreams that he wanted interpreted? Remember that's how Joseph got his big, his big break in Egyptian society because he interpreted the dreams? Pharaoh was always a consulter of stars and kind of spiritual messages and dreams and premonitions. And so he had sorcerers and astrologers and he consulted them vis-a-vis the Jewish problem. Okay? They were part of his, they were his paid staff, right? What do I do with these guys? They were the ones that consulted the stars, And they said, we see, we see, on this one particular day, we see that the Redeemer, that that a person who is destined perhaps to redeem the Jewish people will be born today. Today is an auspicious day for that Redeemer or potential Redeemer to be born. We also see that in his, in this Redeemer's destiny, there is danger for him with water. Uh Uh-huh. So, throw all the boys into the Nile River. They saw that he was going to be a male redeemer whose downfall would come through water. So, they advised Pharaoh to make this decree. So, Pharaoh says, throw the boys on this day, on whatever day that was, throw the boys, baby boys born this day, into the Nile River. Why the boys? Because they saw that the redeemer was going to be a boy. It was going to be a male. So they said, throw the boys, all boys. We don't know who's, who's it going to be, but we know that, that very likely the Redeemer will be born on this day. And so, or something's going to happen on this day. This day is like an auspicious. So this, so, so we got we to gotta throw the boys into the Nile River specifically because, because the downfall was going to be through water. Parenthetically, they got some things right. Yeah, they got some things right, because Moses was, he wasn't born on that day, but he was kind of like, he, he came out, you know, into the, into the world, if you will, on that day, out of hiding. Um, and his downfall did happen through water, ultimately, when he hit the rock. Remember when he was supposed to speak to the rock to produce water? And he hit the rock, and God says, ah, you hit the rock, you're not going to Israel? Remember that whole uh, kerfuffle from Moses? Whatever, it's at the end of the book of, book of Numbers. It says that God, they came to a place after Miriam passed away, and there was no water So God says, speak to the rock, and it'll produce water. A miracle, right? And Moses, um, instead of speaking to the rock, he hits the rock once, he hits it twice, and God says, ah, you didn't speak to the rock, you hit the rock, because of that, you're not going to the land. Anyway, without getting into that story too deeply, the point is that because of water, the water episode, that kind of ended his... leadership of the people, or, or, or ended it at some point before they went into the land of Israel, that brought about a downfall on some level. So the point is that that's what the astrologers, well, they saw something about the Redeemer and water, and they tried to make a plan, and obviously it didn't work, but that's what they tried to, to plan. Now, here's the deal. On some level, okay, cool. on some level, um, pharaohs, uh, um, not, not only Pharaoh. Yeah, Hold on one second. Before we continue with my elaboration on this, let's, let's read this inside. Let's read this inside text 2A from the Talmud. Okay, Linda, please read this in a moment. Hold on, let me get this up on the screen. Text 2A from the Talmud. Take it away. Okay.
1: Um, excuse me.
0: They saw in their astrology that the Savior of the Jewish people would be stricken by water. They arose and decreed Every son that is born, you shall cast into the river. So the Talmud gives, as I said before, this is where I got it from. The Talmud says this clearly, that the astrologers saw that the savior, the Moshiach, the 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 savior of the people, the redeemer, would be ultimately punished by water. So they said, okay, throw the sons and throw, throw the boys into the Nile River. This explains in an incredible way why Moses' mom takes him and puts him where. By the water. Why? Why? Because she figured if she puts him into the Nile River, hold on, are you with me on this? She figured if she puts him into the Nile River, what's going to happen? That's going to trigger the astrologers to see that the Redeemer of the Jews was thrown into the river. And what are they going to do? They're going to rescind the decree. Are you with me? They're going to see, yes, they're going to see in the in the signs that, that that Savior, Redeemer, in the water, that benchmark, if you will, has been triggered. That's, that's happened. And therefore, the decree will be rescinded and the rest of the Jewish boys will be saved. Does that make sense, what I just said? Mm-hmm. So what was her plan? Was her plan to float him down the Nile River until he's 18? Of course not. Her plan was to put him by the river. And then at a later point, you know, maybe later that day or whatever it is, to collect him. But at that point, they would have seen in the stars that, the, that the, this Redeemer was already put in the water and that would take it away. Now again, none of this is my speculation. None of this is my interpretation. This is all straight up in the sources. Text 2b. Text 2b is the Medrash. Medrash Rabbah says it clear as day. Linda, please read this one as well. Why did she cast him into the river? So that the astrologers would think he had already been cast into the river and would no longer look for him. You see that? She put him into the river. Why? So that the astrologers would see that he's already been put into the river. And they would think that there was no basket. They would think that it's one of their officers that that didn't. God forbid that, 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 that killed the baby. And they would no longer look for him. That's what they thought. And indeed, this is exactly what happened. One more text, text 2C, from the Talmud, back to the Talmud. Linda, one more, please.
1: Once Yochebed cast Moses into the water, they said,
0: we no longer see anything like that sign and they canceled their decree. In other words, what does it mean they didn't, we don't see anything like that sign. The sign said that he needs to be put into the into the water that there's some water and they already saw that that had been triggered if you will that that had already that benchmark had already been passed and so they canceled the decree. Turns out, turns out if we just stop right here, Moses saved Jewish lives on that day at a, at an early age. Are you with me what I just said? Yeah. Turns out that even without anything that he did personally, he directly, maybe indirectly, directly, whatever, he effectively saved Jewish lives by his mom putting him by the river. So she puts him at the river, the astrologer, why did she put him by the river? She wanted to save him, put him in a cave, put him, uh, make a hut, you know, a secret, you know, dig underground, secret bunker, figure out something. She had three months to make a plan. She puts him in the Nile. I asked the Klutzkasha. You, you put a baby in a Nile on a river? What are you thinking? What kind, what kind of uh, What kind of plan is that? Right? But now we understand. It wasn't to protect him. It was to eliminate the decree. If the decree was that all the Jewish boys will have to be thrown into the Nile because the Redeemer needs to go into the Nile. So let's put him into the Nile. She knew who he was. She knew that Moses was special. The whole house was filled with light when he was born, according to our sages. So she knew that she had something special on her hands. And so she puts him in the Nile. The astrologers see that that's already been fulfilled. Boom, they're out. Done. Decree is over. Now she can collect her son. Well, what happens is in the interim, someone else finds him, the daughter of Pharaoh, Adopts him, and the rest is history. And the story is off and running. Does this make sense? Yes. Yeah. Is this perhaps some new information that we haven't learned before? Yes. Some for some of us. Okay. Now I want to add another wrinkle. I think. Can yeah. I say something? Sure. For sure.
1: I think that this uh, this uh, assumption is based on uh, a belief that uh, the astrologer has the power of really predicting something. I mean, we, we don't believe in astrology.
0: Right, right. So,
1: uh, in these people. Right. So it, this doesn't make sense.
0: Good, 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 good question. The Talmud says, good, excellent question. The Talmud says in tractate Sotah, in that same section. The Talmud says, see this. The astrologers see, but they don't know what they're seeing. They, they can gaze at something, but they have no idea what they're looking at. But that's a contradiction. I, I'm saying they saw something. But they didn't know what they, they saw, something, Redeemer, water, but they didn't know the lines got crossed. Rambam says, Maimani says famously, Rambam says that astrology is not a chachma, it's not a science. No. He says it's, it's, it's fake. Why? Not that there aren't theoretically signs in the stars, but that who's the one that's going to be able to interpret it accurately? Mm-hmm. So, what it means is the astrologers, the assumption here is, and I understand the question. But the assumption that we're going to go with right now based on the Talmud is that they were able to see something, but the way they interpreted it was wrong. And based on their interpretation, they made a, they made a decree. Based on their interpretation, they rescinded the, the decree to the benefit of the Jewish people when they took away the decree. But the whole thing was based on, on a misunderstanding. So the, the, the lesson is not that, a, that their astrology, the astrologers were right, it's that they were wrong. And it turned out to be... Um, I don't know if it turned out to be good or not good. I mean, it's not good that the Jewish boys were thrown into the river in the first place. It's good that they ended it at some point. I, I, I think I understand your point, but, and, and I think that's what comes out of this, is that they didn't actually have a clear picture, but they saw something, but not they didn't have clarity. But I want to ask another question. Forget the astrologers and forget the water for right... I mean, don't forget the water yet, but put, putting all this aside, I have a very simple question. Again, if I would stop you cold, every one of you, And ask you a simple question. Where did Yocheved place the basket with Moses? Where did she put it? If I would ask you before tonight's class, everyone would say, in the Nile River. But we already read something that tells us that it wasn't exactly the case. Where did we see that? I'm going to pull up the text one more time. Take a look at text 1A. I'm sorry, take a look at text 1B. We want to go back. Back a, few, a page or two, to page 177. It says, when she could no longer hide him she, took him, she took for him a reed basket, smeared it with clay and pitch, placed the child into it, and put it into the marsh at the Nile's edge. She did not place him into the water. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. The, marshes, the, the marsh at the Nile's edge, I mean, like, who's that? What kind of story is this? Everyone knows. She put him into the Nile River. Everyone knows, right? Turns out that that's not true. Turns out, if you read the Scripture, read the Scripture. All right, if you read, I mean, that's true, but it just doesn't sound like, uh, I don't think I've ever said that phrase. But if you read read the psukim, read the verses, yeah? If you read the text, she doesn't put them into the Nile River. She puts them into the marsh at the edge of the Nile River. What's the marsh? What's a marsh? Uh, They're like reeds. It's like reeds. It's like the side. It's like the banks. Yeah? I think in the Brady Bunch, there was a marsh, marsh, marsh. (laughs) (laughs) Said Jan. (laughs) Said Jan. (laughs) Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. All right. Yes.
1: They do grow grow in water.
0: (laughs) Right. But the understanding here is that it wasn't actually in the water. It was in the marsh. At the edge of the Nile. It says specifically at the edge of the Nile. It doesn't say that she put him into the Nile. At the edge of the Nile. What I'm saying is everyone, again, before tonight's class... I, I probably should have done it at the beginning. Should have just said, "Hey, question: Where did she put the baby? Where did, put the, where, where, where did Moses go? Nile River. Everyone's going to pull out a Nile. Everyone will pull out a Nile River. Everyone, without exception. I challenge you to to, to ask a friend at any point after tonight's class. Hey, I, I'm, I forgot. Set them up. Set them up. Where did where did Moses where did, where's Moses placed in the basket? The Nile River. Everyone's going to say the Nile River. You look at the Torah. The Torah says no. He was put in the marsh at the edge of the Nile River. So I have two questions. Number one, why? If, especially based on what we just asked, if the whole point was to trick the astrologers into thinking, are you with me what I'm saying? If the whole point was to trick the astrologers that, that the Redeemer, the future Redeemer, was into the Nile, then she should have put him where? In the Nile. What's this edge of the Nile? on her? Did they follow her? Well, what's going on here? Were there drones? Right? No, so so the question is, right, so the question is why, who knows, why if they're soldiers, might have been, right, why the edge of the Nile, why in the marsh next to the Nile as opposed to the Nile itself? Number one, it's, maybe it's safer. Okay, that's a, that's a valid answer. I, I've, that's got v- a, I've
1: got an answer for that. Go. When the Nile overflows its banks, it creates like this uh, estuary of backwater that she can't get to the Nile um. from this overflow.
0: of. Okay, okay, you're saying it's, it's
1: a overflow for, for a half a mile deep into Egypt. Okay,
0: know? okay, I can't. That that makes a lot of sense. That's the pragmatic answer. We're gonna go with a with an. I'm I'm telling you straight up right now. This is for everybody. This is going to be a brilliant answer. It's from the Raga Chavar. You know what the Raga Chavar is? He gave the Rebbe Smicha. The Raga Chavar was like the most brilliant sage, one of the most brilliant sages of the last 150 years. The Raga Chavar has an incredible insight that will blow everyone's mind. But, I, but your answer, I actually like your answer. You're saying pragmatically, right? Either you could say if there's water, there, or it's the overflow, she couldn't get further. All of these answers make sense. But we're gonna go to a also, complete...
1: Also, the, the, the reeds would hide the baby.
0: Ah, oh, ah, oh, good, even, ba- even better. The reeds strategically, right, would hide the baby. Good, good, excellent. Again, we're gonna go, all of these answers are good. We're gonna go much, much deeper into an um, incredible halachic concept and mystical concept which we're going to get to in a moment. But let me reset these questions. So question number one of our new set of questions is, if, if the whole point is to trick the astrologers into thinking that the Redeemer was placed into the water, so why, why place him at the water's edge in the marsh? Why not into the river, number one? Number two, what's question number two? Oh, oh question number two is, where does Batya, the daughter of Pharaoh, where does she find him? In the middle of the why, why is he called Moses. Let's just go let's just ask that question. Why the name Moses? She drew him from the water. She drew him from the water. From the water from the marsh. Hold on, one second. One second, there's a glitch in the matrix here. Was he put in was he in the marsh? Was he in the water? So she didn't say why did she call him Moses because she pulled him out of the marsh. Since she pulled him out of the water, in Hamayim from the water, she pulled him. So was it water or was it marsh? What's going on here? And in case you're wondering where I'm getting this information from, I'm going to pull it up right here on the screen. Right here on the screen. You have it in your booklets in front of you. Take a look. Take a look at text number three. Ed, please read this one. Text number three.
1: The child grew up, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became like her son. She named him Moses. And she said, for I drew him from the water.
0: I drew him from the water, not I drew him from the marsh. So now we're left with a few questions, which I know we have some good answers for, but we're going to go much deeper. Question number one, we have two questions. Question number one, if the objective of Yocheved, Moses' mom, was to satisfy the prediction of the astrologers about the Redeemer having an encounter with water, put him in the water, number one. Number two, if she didn't put him in the water... How does he end up in the water? She puts him by the marsh. He ends up in the water. What's going on here? What's going on here? We need to answer these questions. And the Rogachev, the great Gaon, the great genius of Rogachev, has a dizzying answer. But first, one of my favorite stories to tell about the Rogachev comes from a Fabrengan of our Rebbe. The Rebbe spoke at a Fabrengan once. That everyone has tsars, everyone has challenges, everyone is, has turmoil in their life, but everyone chooses where their turmoil and where their tsars are going to be to a certain extent. Based on where we put ourselves, that's where the challenges come. They said, for example, the rugged shavar, he had challenge in his life. He had turmoil. What was his turmoil? What, was his, what, what, what bothered him? Yeah, bothered him was when he was studying Talmud on Shabbos, on Shabbat, and he had brilliant insights, the most brilliant insights of, of Talmudic study. And on Shabbat, he couldn't write them down. And he knew because his mind raced so fast, he knew that after Shabbat, he would never remember that quick insight that he just had. That bothered him. That's what drove him crazy. Anyway, that's just a little incident into the Raghad He was an amazing genius. And he says the following. You notice, ever notice that in the story of Pharaoh, there's a lot of mentions of the Nile River? Yes. Remember, like, Pharaoh has dreams about the Nile River. Um... What else? Um, Pharaoh, when Moses tells Pharaoh about the plagues, Pharaoh is, is, is hanging out by the Nile River. The Nile River is the first of the 10 plagues. It turns to blood. Why, is the Nile, why does the Nile River play such a prominent role? So, yeah.
1: Oh, it's because it's, it's their, God is their... Good,
0: right? excellent, excellent. So according to our understanding, according to our tradition, we have a, we have a classic teaching on this. And that is, that is, that... Um, <laughs> The Egyptians worshipped. They had many gods. The Egyptians were a the ancient Egyptians were a a polytheistic, a pagan society. They served many, many gods, and um, one of their gods, one of their major gods, was actually the Nile River. So if there's an obsession with the Nile River. It was one of their gods. Okay. It's also, a major artery in terms of like. Yeah, it's very. Yeah, it's very important. Very, it's critical to, to, Egyptians, to Egy- Egyptian life yeah, and yeah, Egyptian life, success. You know, The whole thing. E- yeah, sure, the Nile is a very central piece of, uh, of, of Egyptian reality. But it was also their God. Let's take a look at the next text. Text number four. I'm going to read this one inside. Text four comes from Rashi. There is no rainfall in Egypt, and the Nile rises, rises and waters the land. So the Egyptians worshipped the Nile. They treated it like a God. Okay, this... This leads us to a very, very fascinating halachic conclusion. You ready for this? This will blow your mind. There is a law, in Jewish law, there is a halacha that says the following. A person is not allowed. So, sorry again. So banned is B-A-N-N-E-D. So banned, so forbidden is idolatry in Judaism. That one is not allowed to worship idols, obviously, own idols or have any benefit. Listen to this. Have any benefit from any item of foreign pagan worship. In other words, if there's an idol that's being idolized, one is not allowed to have derive any benefit from such an idol. And I hope you're connecting some dots here. I'll I'll make it very clear. The Nile was an idol. The Nile could not be used to benefit, even to save a life, it could not be used to benefit a Jew. Which means, could Moses' mom have used the Nile to rescue Moses? I'm going to ask the question again. Could Moses' mother have used the Nile River, the Egyptian god, to save the life of her son? What's the answer? Halachically, the answer is no. And you're going to say, but to save a life is different. And I'm going to say with three exceptions. Murder, immorality, and idolatry. Those are the three cardinal sins in Judaism that one is not allowed to violate, even, even if one's life is at risk That's straight up halacha, straight up rabbam. It's even one of the texts in this class. I don't know if I want to read the whole thing. Take my word for it or or look it up inside. According to Jewish law, there are three sins. Yaharag, Yaharag, Val Yavar. You you let life be taken, but you don't violate these laws. And one of them is idolatry. And within the realm of idolatry, even benefiting from an idol is forbidden, which means to save the life of her son or to save the life of other boys. Was she allowed to use the Nile? The answer is no. This explains, according to the Chaver, why she put the baby not in the Nile, but where? In the marsh next to the Nile. I hope the answer is 100% crystal clear. I asked the question before, why didn't she put the baby in the river? And the answer is because she couldn't. She was not allowed to. Why? Because it was an idol. And as an idol, you can have benefit from an idol, even to save a life. So to rescue, to, to hide her son by putting him in a basket on the Nile River, or for that matter, to save the lives of other boys because the astrologers would see that the decree had been fulfilled, and blah, 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 like we said before. And but, but, but to put him on the Nile River would also be forbidden. Is that, is that clear? So what does she do? She puts the baby the closest place possible. Not out of access necessarily, not for hiding purposes. All these were good answers. But this is the Ragachava. It's not, not my answer either. This is the Ragachava's answer. The Ragachava says it's because halachically she was forbidden to use the Nile. So she had to use the area, the marsh, next to the Nile, which wasn't deified. It wasn't worshipped. It wasn't an Egyptian god. So she puts the baby at the closest point to the Nile River. And she hoped, she hoped that the astrologers, in their blurry vision, right, in their very blurry vision, would say, oh, we see the Redeemer close enough to the water, probably okay. But we're still left with a question. The question is, the daughter of Pharaoh still pulls him out of the water. He ends up in the Nile. So what happens? Number one, what actually happened? Number two, he eventually did go into the Nile, which means he was touched by an idol. was floated, pushed up, buoyancy, right? Buoyanced, whatever, by an idol. Saved, right? Because otherwise, see, so the the Nile River did rescue. So to this, we go to another insight of our sages. That some of you may be familiar with. What was the daughter of Pharaoh doing at the Nile River that day? Do you know? Washing. Wasn't she doing? It says she was washing, but according to our sages, you know what she was really doing? Washing herself, using it as a mikvah. She was cleansing herself of idolatry. She was purifying herself, and you know what? Let me read this in the original because it's going to say it better than I could say it. Text number six. Let me read this inside. Take a look from the Talmud. The verse states, and the daughter of Pharaoh, page 181. The verse states, and the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river. Rabbi Yochanan said in the name of Rabbi Shem bar Yochai. Rabbi Yochanan, in the name of the Rashbi, the great Rabbi Shem bar Yochai said, this teaches that she came down to the river, to the Nile River, to cleanse herself from the impurity of her father's idols. She came to cleanse herself from the impurity of her father's idols, which means that she was, she was renouncing idolatry. And the law is that if someone renounces, the Raga says, and it's brought in halacha. But the, the law is that if somebody renounces an idol, then it loses its idolatrous status. So what happened at that moment was she not only purified herself. What else did she purify? What else did she purify? The Nile River. I hope you guys are with me on this. So on that day, when she goes to renounce idolatry, when she goes to renounce Avodah Zaret, renounce her father's idols, she's also renouncing the, the Nile River as an idol. And thus, for that moment, the Nile River becomes kosher. At that point, a miracle happens. Listen to this. And the, the water flows into the marsh, pulls out, the basket into the river, thus satisfying literally the prophecy of the astrologers. And it was kosher at that point because she had bathed and purified the Nile River through her purification. So although like Egypt worshipped it, but for one moment when she was in there, she had purified the Nile. The baby now flows into the Nile and everything makes sense. We now, go, Linda, go. But something doesn't, something doesn't make sense. What? As an Egyptian, why would she be interested oh, in kosher? Oh, I mean, she converted. Oh, she did convert? She, well, I don't know if it's official conversion, but she oh, she, okay. she adopted a monotheistic lifestyle. Oh, yeah. Okay. Turns out that she, the adopted mom of Moses, was <laughs> monotheistic. Okay. It kind of works. Huh.
1: Yeah. And Abraham. Yeah. Oh, right.
0: Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like he
1: went,
0: he, no, he left, he, he left, left pagan, idol worship. he left idol worship, That's he left right. paganism right. for sure. Yeah, yeah. so know. she left, she left paganism. Did she officially become Jewish? I don't know. I, don't, I mean, maybe, maybe. I think when I, when I learned this, when we learned this as kids or whatever, you know, in, in, in the younger years, we always learned that she, con- she was converting to Judaism. Now, was it literally, did she know of Judaism? Was it just monotheism? I, I don't know what it was. But essentially, she was renouncing idolatry at that moment. And, and this puts together, why, I don't know. She was, uh, she had an Ashama. who knows. Eventually, so what this does is it puts together all the pieces. So I just want I want to summarize what we have so far. So, Yo-hev, let me tell the story without the questions. In other words, like, just this. now we're going to have a straightforward understanding of the story. Moses is born yeah. prematurely. Three months later, his mother needs to make a plan. There's a decree against the Jewish boys about throwing them into the Nile River because of the astrologers. So she says, let me take my son, who it will be the Redeemer, and let me put him on the Nile to save everyone else's lives to stop this decree. But she knows she can't put him into the Nile because it's an idol. So she can't benefit from the idol. By having them float in the Nile River and not drown, so she can't have benefit. She can't have none in Hebrew in and the terminology. It's called hanok. You can't have hanok. You can't have benefit from, from an idol. So she puts them next to the to the marsh, to, uh, next to the river in the marsh. Meanwhile, Batya, the daughter of Pharaoh, she's now renouncing idol I, I, idols. She's now renouncing the Nile as a god. The Nile therefore reverts back to a kosher status. The water f- overflows a little bit. Brings the, brings the basket and the baby into the Nile because now it's kosher. She sees the basket in the river. She draws him out. Names him Moses. The rest is history. Straightforward. This is the ragachover. I'm t- I, I knew going into this class that no one's ever heard this before. And we, a lot of these questions we never thought to ask. This is by no means the only way to answer the questions. But this is one perspective that's amazing. But I want to go deeper. Let's understand, because we're still left with some questions. I mean, not questions, but some interesting analyses. It turns out that on that day, two things happened. Number one, the Nile River, for at least for a moment, the Nile River lost its idol status. I-D-O-L, not I-D-L-E. It lost its idol status, number one, because of Bacha. And number two, the Jewish boys were saved, the decree of throwing the boys into the Nile River ended. And they both happened pretty much at the same moment when Moses hits that water. When Moses hits that water, the Nile River has become no longer an idol. And the boys, the Jewish boys, are no longer going to be thrown into the river. And they're both Both things are associated with, well, Bacha also, but with Moses. So what's the connection and what, what are the, what's the deeper message here? And so now I want to go a little bit deeper, wrap everything up. And we have a few more minutes, which is perfect timing to wrap everything up and walk away with a takeaway message. So, so far, I hope, like, this whole story has been expanded and you're, get, you're a little bit thrilled about the story. I know I am. But now let's go a little bit deeper to ask the question, why did the Egyptians worship the Nile in the first place? What's that all about? Why worship the Nile? On a simple level, well, the Nile was their source of commerce, but on a deeper level, it was also their source of life. Understand this. It doesn't rain much in Egypt. So in order for, um, for the agriculture to survive, in order for there to be food in Egypt, this is before importing, right? Nowadays, you know, anywhere you can import, not anywhere, but at least here, we're very privileged that you can have food from anywhere. But but back, back in the day, in, in Egypt, if it didn't grow, you weren't going to eat. So how, does, how do things grow in Egypt? The answer is irrigation from the river. It doesn't rain, but they use the Nile. When the Nile is flowing, they created, you know they You carve out channels, and the, 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 the rivers flow, and they, they create um, you know, uh, irrigation. Yeah, they, they, and, they, and they have it, the irrigation going to the farms and the fields, to provide water for, for crops to grow, and that's how Egypt survives. Contrast this with Israel, although Israel also doesn't get tremendous amounts of rain, but at least in the biblical terminology, Israel is considered to be a land that is that survives, not I, today, you know, it's different. You have uh, Donna and Fred, I look at you, right? Your uh, daughter and son-in-law have uh, grow tomatoes in the desert. So that, I mean, technology is amazing, right? Drip irrigation. So, um, so, so, That's what we have today. But back in the day, Israel, at least biblically, Israel survives based on rain. And according to our sages, there's a distinction between rain and river. What's the difference? When you need rain, you know that it's dependent on God. You know it's dependent on above. So you feel a dependency on Hashem and you feel humbled toward God. When it's a river that you have to irrigate, that you have to create channels, then you feel like it's you that created your own food. It's you that created your own success because your ingenuity and your engineering and your creation has produced all of this. Therefore, I'm going to, so just, just to clarify this, there's, and this is not necessarily, you know, these are different archetypes, if you will, different, different paradigms. The Israel paradigm is one of humility an acknowledgement, one of turning to heaven and saying, God, you're in control. I know that you—that in your hands is the rain, and I ask you to make it rain, but I know that even when it rains, it's not, I, I didn't make it rain. God, I still know you're in charge. So Israel and rain is synonymous with an acknowledgement of a higher power in our lives, whereas Egypt, associated with the Nile, is associated with a belief that one is their own God, or that they are a God, that they are in control. It's ego, it's narcissism, it's, it's arrogance, it's belief in self. So Egypt and Israel are two completely different paradigms. This is I'm giving you explanations based on Jewish philosophy and Jewish mysticism. The Egypt paradigm, starting again the other way, the Egypt paradigm is, look at what I did. Self-made man, self-made woman, I created, look what I did with the, with the Nile River. We created all this food. We made it. We, we <laughs> irrigated it. We made it happen. This is us. It's our doing or it's my doing. It's ego-driven. Egypt is associated with this ego. I did it. I don't know about God. Israel, right, is associated with rain, heaven, humility, acknowledgement of something higher, a higher power, a higher force, and I surrender to something greater than myself, knowing that I, I didn't do it on my own. I'm reliant on something greater. These are two completely different paradigms. Mm-hmm. So when we say that the Egyptians worship the Nile, what does it mean? It really means they worship themselves. When we say that the Egyptians worship the Nile, what does it mean? They were in denial of something higher. Denial of su- See what I did there? Of something higher, of a higher power. Like, what higher power? We don't need anything higher. We don't believe in anything higher. We don't need God. When Moses comes to Pharaoh for the first time and says, God said, let my people go. You know what Pharaoh says? Who's God? That's literally his first response. Not like, I don't care what he says. His first response is, who's God? You mean me? (laughs) That's what he means. That's what Pharaoh means. Who's God? Who's God? Who's this higher power you speak of? I know what I've made. What's what who what has this figure called Hashem? What has he done? Because we I've done everything. The self-made person, when you talk to them about God, says, God didn't play any role in this. Right? So this is what Egyptian um Uh, This is what it means to serve the Nile River. This is what it means to deify the Nile River. It really means to worship self, to worship ego, to forget about anything higher, to forget about a higher power. There is no higher, there is no higher force. There is no creator. I'm not reliant on anything else. It's all self-generated and it's all in my, it's all in my hands. This is the danger of Egypt. And on a spiritual level, this is what they were trying to do by throwing the boys into the Nile River. What does it mean? Again, there's according to Hasidic philosophy. What does it mean that, that there was a decree to throw the boys in the Nile? I know what it means, literally. I know what it means, infanticide. But what it means spiritually is that the decree was take Yiddish, Yinglach, y- Yinglach and Medelach, take Yiddish, Jewish boys and girls and inculcate them into the Egyptian worldview, into this Egyptian lifestyle of the self-made man and the self-made woman. It, it, um, educate them and integrate them in a society that says, you are your own master, and nothing is above you. That's what they were trying to do to the Jewish boys. They were trying to throw them into the river, into that de- into that deification of not denial, of self. The deification of ego. That's what they were trying to, trying to inculcate them into. Yeah, to look at to to see this inside black and white, I'll show you text 8b. I know I'm skipping texts that are very critical texts, mind you, but we don't have time to read everything. Yeah, text 8b. The Rebbe says, Pharaoh's ultimate goal was to cast them into the river, i.e., into the Nile, which was their idol. In other words, Pharaoh wanted the Jewish people to be cast and drowned in the idolatry of Egypt. And what is the idolatry? What is the idolatry? The idolatry is belief. That it's all about you and nothing higher than you. This explains a a very interesting wrinkle in the story. The Torah tells us that slavery only began after the first, the original generation of Jews passed away. After Joseph and his brothers passed away, only then did slavery begin. Why not sooner? So the simple answer is because they, they couldn't mess with Joseph or his brothers. But a deeper answer is because those Jews, the original Jews born in Israel, we were never susceptible to the Egyptian way of looking at things. I'm going to say that again. The Jews born in Israel in a place of rain where they are always looking up and knew that they couldn't make it rain. I, I, I'm powerless. Rain Dependency on rain means you acknowledge that you are powerless. God is in control and you surrender. That's Israel. That's the Israel paradigm. So the generation born in Israel could never be thrown into the Nile. They could never lose that connection to a higher power. But you know who could? Their kids, born in Egypt, could be inculcated in that Egyptian uh, society. Turns out, turns out that this was the spiritual danger of Egyptian exile. This was the spiritual danger of the Nile. This is the spiritual danger of being thrown into the Nile, of, of believing that you're in control and that there's no God or that God is not in control and all that is meaningless. That's the real danger. That's the spiritual danger that we're dealing with. Who is the one? To pull us out of that? Who is the redeemer, the physical redeemer of the Jewish people to tell them, no, there's something greater than yourself? It's the one person. If we, let me just set this up so that it's obvious. If the, if the problem is ego and arrogance, who do you need to combat ego and arrogance? Somebody who is humble. humble. And who's the most humble person that we know? Sure. Now we have the answer. It's Moses. Right. Who is the humble hero? Humble hero. Someone coined that phrase. Someone coined that phrase. Who is the... No, but in this case, it was perfect. It was apropos. Who is the humble hero that we need? Because again, Egypt is all about ego and narcissism and self-made. I did this. This is mine. Li ya'ayri v'ani asisani, says Pharaoh. Quote it. Li It's my Nile. V'ani asitani. And I made myself. That's what he says. That's what he says. It's my Nile and I made myself. That's the, air, it's the ego. It's the klippa. It's the, it's, the, it's the evil of Egypt. So who, do you, who combats that evil of Egypt? Who combats the evil of ego or the dangers of ego? It's the one who is perfectly humble and surrendered to God. And who is that? Moses. From even his origin story, Moses is a shepherd and a little sheep, a little goat runs away and he chases after the goat and the goat's drinking. He said, oh, I didn't know that you were thirsty. And he carries the goat, the little goat, back to the flock. He's a guy that's not like, how dare you run away from my flock? Don't you know I'm a shepherd? Who are you? That's how how normal people react, right? You get offended, even by accidents. You get offended because somehow it takes away from your ego. He was a guy. It wasn't about him. He was was humble. He was self-effacing. He was selfless. When people started up with him, Korach starts up with him, you know, we're going to take you down, Moses. Moses falls down to the ground. He like bows down to the ground. He asks God for help. Moses, it's not about him. It's complete selflessness. So who is the one to save the Jewish people from the evils of Egypt, of ego and narcissism? The answer is the master of humility. And who is the master of humility? Our humble hero, Moses. So Moses rides in and saves the day. And on that day that he was, on that fateful day that we read about before, the day that he was put near and then into the nile river what happens two things happen number 1 with the emergence of moses moses now comes out of hiding so what happens number 1 suddenly the nile river is no longer even proximity he's next to the nile the next thing you know the nile river is no longer a deity because of mary because of batcha the daughter of pharaoh fine but his proximity There's everything is by divine providence. He's put next to the Nile. The next thing you know, the Nile River already has lost its ego, has lost its deification status. And the next thing you know, the boys are no longer being thrown into the Nile. The next thing you know, he has an influence where the Jewish kids are no longer susceptible, no longer being influenced to be taught that you are a self-made man, that it's all about you. Don't think about anything higher. He now is reversing that trend. So the two things happen on that day. The Nile no longer is a is an idol, and the boys are no longer being subjugated to that klipa, to that, to that evil of ego. Ego is not always evil, but there is an evil of ego, which is the belief in only oneself and nothing higher than oneself. This takes us, hopefully this answers all the questions. I, th- I believe it does, even though I said it pretty quickly. And I also believe it gives us a lesson forward. Because what was true of Egypt then is true of the United States today and other countries today. And that is that there is a belief That there is is even a phrase, a catchphrase in America, self-made man, self-made man, right? They have foam fingers, number one. But number one could also mean look out for number one, right? Number one, look at at me, look what I've done. There's a tendency, there's a tendency in today's day and age to be, for lack of a better term, full of oneself. Yeah, think about it. What do people run after? And it's not a new trend, it's an old trend. It's been trendy since Egypt and, and beyond even. What's the trend? Everyone wants to be famous. Everyone wants to have power and influence. Everyone wants money. We run after the material stuff. And what about God? Eh, maybe. Maybe if we have some extra time. You know, maybe we'll have something higher. But what's the primary? The primary is self. How do we pump up self? How do we how do we aggrandize self? How do we make ourselves feel better? How make ourselves more famous? How do we misbashet? How do we mitbashet? How do we like? How do we expand expand ourselves? Puffing up self, chametz. It's like the puffiness of the bread as opposed to the flatness of the matzah. It's the same thing with the Exodus and slavery. Slavery is chametz. Slavery is ego. Freedom is matzah. Freedom is is humility. It's Moses, right? It's that Moses basket. So here's what's going on. Here's what's going on in this story. The Torah tells us this week that what is the evil of slavery? What does it mean to be enslaved? It means to believe that you are in control. That is the worst slavery. It's the most suffocating slavery and it seems like the most innocuous. Like, well, what's wrong with that? That seems like strength. I believe that I'm, that I'm strong, that I can do it all. That seems, like a, that seems like a virtue, not a vice. Yeah, if it's a virtue, if it's a virtue, then everyone in this society would be very healthy. Everyone would be healthy and happy. And uh, I hate to say it, but it's not the case. And the reason is because we've been sold on a lie. Because the ego does not actually make us... Feeding the ego, pumping up the ego, right? <laughs> Inflating the ego, more stuff and more pride and more ego and bigger... St- and and, and, and um, more self-reliance and less God and less God and less God does not make anyone happy. It doesn't make anyone happy. It just doesn't. It, 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 and it creates all sorts of other problems because if I'm in control, then we're really in trouble, right? I don't. Right? If any one of us could say about ourselves, if I'm in, if I'm God, then we're all doomed because we all know who we are, right? If I'm in control, like if God's in control, Melech, that's one thing. But if I'm in control, that's it. Give up now because this ain't gonna work. This ain't gonna work. If I'm in control, this ain't gonna work. The story of Egypt is a story of a battle between ego and God. Ego stands for, according to Rabbi Taub, Rabbi Shays Taub, edging God out. This is the battle. This is the battle. Am I giving space for, am I deflating self and creating an open space, welcoming space for God? Or do I pump myself up and block out, eclipse, totally eclipse the divine? This is the battle. And of course, it's not either or, and there are many shades of gray, but to to bring out, to highlight this point, we're going to make it dramatic in this situation, we have the Nile and Pharaoh and Egypt on the one side. And then we have Moses and the basket and Batia, the daughter of Pharaoh, on the other side. And in today's story, we learned that on the day that Moses was placed near and around the Nile River, the Nile River stopped becoming a deity and the boys stopped getting thrown in because... It was revealed already in that moment that there's something higher. All it takes is a crack in the armor. All it takes is you have a big balloon, big balloon. Think of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I know I'm a few weeks later on the reference. Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, yeah? The Charlie Brown, the, I'm sure they still have it. The big Charlie Brown, imagine you took a pin. Maybe a very thick pin, a very strong pin. I'm not suggesting anyone do this. But imagine you took one and little pop, What's going to happen? I'm sure they have safety valves or whatever. But let's just say they didn't. The whole thing deflates. One little little poke and all the hot air goes out. The same thing is true with the ego. All it takes is one opening. It takes one moment of truth, one moment of honesty, one moment of surrender to deflate the ego and to be real. And who doesn't want to be real? So as we conclude tonight's class, let's remember the power of humility, the power of Moses. And the Moses within each of us, and that power is to say no to the ego, just say no to the ego, and recognize that there is something greater than ourselves, something worth serving. Thank you for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. I hope you appreciated tonight's class. I hope you enjoyed tonight's class. And once again, David and Yona, I'm just saying, it's not, it's not going to be the same without your physical presence, I mean, I guess you'll still be there, but please share some opportunities with us from across the pond. You know where to find us. We'll still keep in touch with you, and, but, I, but really, I want to wish you guys safe travels, a Hatzlacha in the move. We say in, in, in our tradition, Mishanem makom, Mishanem Azal, when you change your place, your location, May your mazal, speaking of astrologies, astro, astro, astrology, your mazal, your, the, the mazal should, should continue to change for the good. Not that it wasn't good until now, but it should get even better. And um, you're moving now to the Holy Land. We've been talking about Israel today. So Israel is the land of the rain, right? The land of, uh, of acknowledgement of a higher power. The land, it's the Holy Land. So indeed, for you, it should be holy and spiritual and beautiful and, time with the family and everything all, all all your dreams and wishes should be fulfilled for the good and may we share um, only happy occasions with each other
1: okay, okay. thank you very much you. Okay. all these uh, years and uh, we learned a lot and that's uh, we we are going to Israel with mitan uh, mitan, with a package of, good uh, that
0: you beautiful, beautiful, that beautiful. All right, good. Rabbi, Rabbi, Happy to send you questions. with luggage and with packages, and that you can unpack and enjoy. All right, beautiful. Great to see you. Yeah, Steve, jump in.
1: Uh, thank you. This is in the category of questions that nobody thought to ask. Mm-hmm. But did Pharaoh consider Moshe his grandson?
0: That's a great question. That's a great question. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, he might have thought on some level about that until um, maybe he realized that uh, Moses was not, you know, did not feel the same way necessarily about him. I don't know. That's a good question. I think we'd have he to... he did have... Moshe did have Pharaoh's ear. Uh,
1: yeah. When, when, when he was debating that if you don't do this, this you're gonna, these plagues are going to occur. Right. He had no problem getting... Getting Pharaoh's ear,
0: right? He had a lot of access, right? So, is that prior access, or yeah, it's a good, it's a, a very good question. Yeah, very good question. We would have to look it up and see if it's discussed somewhere. But it's definitely an intriguing thought to, to you know to to consider. Good. Rabbi, yes, Fred.
1: Many of the stories in the Torah are metaphors for something deeper, and uh, I want to thank you for your insight in teaching us.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the thank you. Um, I appreciate that. I, I, I feel very privileged to be able to share what I consider to be just absolutely mind mind expanding and mind-blowing insights. Just stuff that's
1: can't just take a literal meaning.
0: It's it's so rich. Torah is so rich, you could read the same story for for 50, 60, 70 years and never even think about the marsh and the river and the implication. It's just so beautiful to see how much is, is, is discussed in Jewish literature. It's actually an amazing, it's dazzling. It's absolutely dazzling. Um, the, um, I, I, you know, I, I encourage everyone, I mean, it, this was this just full disclosure, this was the last session of the current series of Torah studies. We'll continue in, in another week or two with the next series. It always rolls in. But I was going to suggest everyone should get a textbook. They're not expensive. It's like 10, 15 bucks on Amazon. You get it delivered straight to your house. And the, the advantage is we don't have a chance to read all the texts inside in the class. We just I, I skip around and whatever. But this is a good way. Thank Steve, right? Steve's holding it up. This is a really good way to look at all the other texts and just see the beauty of, of, of the material that some of some of which we just don't have time to read in class. Um, of course if you're here and you get one of these copies. So mm-hmm. and, and that has all the material you could take home. Yes.
1: I have, I have a uh, I have a couple questions. Yes. What, where did
0: the Jews get their water? Where did the Jews get the water? That's a very good question. The, um, it's very possible that there were other tributaries and sources of water or wells that were not emanating directly from the Nile or had a different status than the idolatry of the Nile. Um, and I, it's probably discussed in the Raghachavar, but I, I had the same question and that was the that was the thought that I had. And to explain your question, your question is if the Nile River is an idol and you can't have any benefit, so then where do they have water from? Okay? So I mean the, the answer would be, right, presumably that there were other sources of water outside the Nile River, some sort of other natural bodies of water, whether it was a lake or whether it was another river or a tributary that maybe has a different status than the original, or a well, wells that were dug. Some other type of, of status. I wouldn't be surprised, for that matter, if Goshen, the Jewish place, I'm speculating now, this, I haven't seen this anywhere, if Goshen maybe was the reason why the Jews were settled there is because maybe there was another water source that was able to support that wasn't the Nile, and that's what Yosef had, had kind of preempted. It's very possible. I would not that's be surprised true. if that was the case.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought, but I wanted to... See if there was any statement.
0: So, no, I'm, I'm, I'm making this up together with you at this point. Okay. Yeah.
1: And the other question I had is, did, the, did, the, did the, the, the decree against the boys was rescinded when Moshe was put into the water, correct? Yes. What happened to the decree against the girls?
0: The, the girls didn't have a decree at least on the simple level. The rabbi speaks about a spiritual element of it, but on a physical level, only the boys were to be thrown into the Nile River. There was no decree against the girls.
1: Uh, So there was no thing about the girls being dragged into marriages with the Egyptian boys? No. No.
0: Not to my knowledge, no. Okay. Yeah. Rabbi? Yeah, Richard.
1: A question that's bothered me since the beginning of the class. Um... How did the astrologers know when they saw this basket and this child that that was the chosen one? It could just another guy floating down
0: the river. The astrologers didn't see the basket. The astrologers saw in the sign that the Redeemer, just like they saw that the Redeemer was going to have a negative contact with water, they also saw in the signs that the Redeemer had contact with water already. I- I, there's, I, there's nothing that I, I don't know enough to be able to explain any further. But that's my understanding of what the Talmud says. The Talmud says that they saw that something had been fulfilled, something had been satisfied. Oh, okay. Not that they saw a child on the ground. They saw however they saw in, in, this, in the stars, whatever that looked like. Okay. Yeah.
1: Another question, did, did the, did the, did the Nile revert back to an idolatrous, idolatrous status after that? Or not?
0: I, I would have to look at the Raghav in the original, but my guess would be yes, it reverted back because i don't know that one wo- i don't know that one woman's rescinding of her idols has a permanent effect on the nile river but again according to this it's moses that actually has a, an effect on it according to the rabbits, it's moses being put next to the nile that already influences the nile to take away the ego to start deflating it even if it doesn't deflate right away but it's that that's it's that it's that hole it's that little that little needle hole that starts deflating it that then just takes the, the wind out of the sails of the ego and ultimately ends the decree against the Jewish boys, etc., and just gets the ball rolling in a positive direction. Did it revert back? Halachically, uh, my guess would be yes. We have to look up the Raghat Shaver in the original to see it. Rabbi, was,
1: was Moshe born with five other children?
0: I don't believe so. That was told a, a little bit earlier in the narrative. As the as the population grew, this is before Pharaoh started his. We got to clamp down on the Jews. It seems like that that was part of what rocketed the um, the population up.
1: And then it stopped.
0: I, I don't I don't I've never seen any record of Moses having siblings twi- like, whatever, siblings born with him. Yeah, Ray, jump in. Don't forget to unmute though. Ray, it's yeah. good to see you. Hold on, Ray, we can't, we can't hear you. I'm going to ask you to unmute, and then all you have to do is hit unmute. It should be a prompt that pops up in your screen. There you go. So it, it says in here
1: um, that Moses was born already circumcised. Yes. You might have talked about that already.
0: Not tonight. We talked about it at DPP, Daily Power Power Show. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he's, um, he was born already uh, circumcised. He just didn't have uh, didn't have that and uh, and 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 an, 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 um, Anatomical. anatomically, he just was born without needing a bris. Still, how luckily you would have to have like you would have to have something, right? I but you have wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. All right. Good. 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 I,
1: I you something that when when the Jews had the decree of the babies being Aye. born into the river. I mean, being thrown into the river, they separated. But, 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 but um, Miriam told yep. her parents not to do that.
0: That's right. That's right. Miriam was, this, was the hero. Again, another thing that we focused on at DPP. If you guys are not yet at DPP, you want to join us every day at 12, because we do an in-depth daily study. Some of you are there. In-depth daily study of the, of the, of the Torah portion. So definitely join, join for that. All right, I'm going to sign out. It's great to see you all. Don't forget, this Saturday night, December 25th, movie and Chinese, uh, Chinese food and a movie. Um, we have a lot of programs coming up in January. Stay tuned for some special announcements of upcoming opportunities as well. And uh, great to study with you all. And see you soon. Lila Tov, everybody. Yeah, Take care. Bye. Nisiya Tova. Take care, everybody.